is curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Hello, curious humans. It's always fun having conversations with friends, and this one in particular has been several years in the making. I won't ramble too much in this intro, except to say that I found this probably one of the most fascinating and insightful conversations that I've had in a long while. So really, I just hope that you enjoy listening to this even half as much as I think we both enjoyed recording it. I do make a bit of a plug towards the end for Michael's course. It's called Expanding Awareness. And I can honestly say that it's it's probably been the most impactful self-paced course that I've maybe ever taken. So you can find links to that in the show notes and also his, his essays too. This episode of Curious Humans is brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery, which is my flagship five-week boot camp that is designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols to cultivate greater agency over your physical, mental, and emotional state. The 2022 cohort will be running this November, and my sense is that if this conversation resonates with you, then you'd probably be a really good fit for this upcoming cohort. The NSM curriculum represents my attempt to try and distill everything that I've learned in recent years about how to create the conditions for our nervous systems flourishing. And previous students have shared how partaking has not only improved their sleep and the quality of their relationships, but also tap into deeper states of joy and clarity and confidence in their lives. So with all that said, I'm really proud of the way this is coming together. And it's also by far the best way that you can help to support this podcast. So if you're intrigued at all, you can find out more details and apply to join this year's cohort over at nsmastery.com. Okay, without further ado, please enjoy this uninterrupted deep dive conversation with the ever eloquent and fellow Brit, Mr. Michael Ashcroft. All right. Welcome, Michael. It is a friggin' pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me on, Johnny. I'm so excited to be here, actually. We've been talking about this for such a long time, and now to actually be doing it just feels really good. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we've been like flirting with this conversation <laughs> for about, about a year. Um, almost Whoa. had it in Bali, but this yeah. finally, finally happening. Flirting is fun too, but I'm glad that we're finally getting to the action as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... How are you feeling in three words? Hmm. I'm feeling energized, hmm. alive, and hmm. a little nervous. Hmm. Um, but that always happens with these things. Not hmm. go away, I suspect. But it, I think it's showing me how how I do care about this topic. Most mm. often, do a good job. That's the story coming up in that feeling, I think. Nice. I actually feel exactly the same way. Yeah, I feel kind of nervous, but it's that like excited energy that I'm like, I, I wonder what's going to come. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. So, as a, I guess, as a jumping off point, could we go back to what 
what would you consider to be like the the inciting incident of this of this like path this path that you're now walking what like how would you describe your story from corporate consulting to indie course creator awareness advocate all these things (laughs) (laughs) what if i do now so i guess there's there's two parts to the story one is that i trained as a teacher of the alizana technique kind of as a hobby i was working in in low carbon electricity network innovation at the time and this was a a thing I was doing in my evenings and weekends because it was fun. I never really had the intention of becoming a teacher, even though I was on the teacher training program. And once I did, I didn't plan for it to be my full-time gig. I just, I went in for my first session and I had an experience that was like, wow, okay, there's definitely something here. And I would like to be able to teach this thing and share it with others. But I'll just, you know, learn it for myself and see how far it goes. So that was going in the background and I, I graduated in 2017 after a three-year training. So that was that was there. And at the same time, or a bit later, I was, I'd was i recently started a new job. And in 2018, I, I went through a phase of just massively overworking. So we're talking six months worth of 80-hour weeks, wow. evenings, weekends. And there was some stress in my relationship as well with my partner at the time. And there came a moment where... I, I realized I had to make a change in, in either the, the relationship or the job after several months of this. That night, it happened to be that I chose the relationship and, and made a choice and then had a, a massive panic attack overnight, just mm. full on, I guess, yeah, panic. And then I woke up the next morning in a, in a very strange state. I basically was quite dissociated. I, I didn't really have any emotions. I felt very far away. Everything was foggy. And when I looked at my work laptop that morning, I, I didn't, I couldn't see the idea of tasks and people wanting things from me and all that kind of work that I'd have before. Mm. All I could see was shapes, colors, and lights, <laughs> and mm. I could only engage with the laptop at that level. Wow. And I, I realized something was a bit off at that moment. So it took me a few months to kind of recover from that. I took a few weeks off work completely, and then. Mm. The way I remember it, I only really got to about 60 to 70% of where I was before. I was doing quite well. I was you know, a high performer in, my, in the company. And then suddenly I kind of, I vanished from that perspective because I just couldn't maintain the same pace. Mm. And this actually lasted a while. I didn't escape it. I didn't, I didn't get better for years. And this includes leaving that job and going to another one because I got headhunted and thought, why not? This, this could be a good change for me. It was not a good change for me. But thanks to, thanks to, I guess, COVID, I have to thank for this and the, the confluence of being very online and finding a certain area of Twitter, I, I realized that there was interest in my Alizana Technique stuff. So around my job at the time, I, I tested a bunch of ideas. I put some stuff out there, did a bunch of Zoom calls, trying to explain these concepts. And eventually I realized I had enough both content and audience interest that I could just record my, my stuff from the Zoom calls and put it behind a paywall. And that's how my course began and after a little while i realized hey i can actually grow this and i quit my job and now you're 2021 and, and here i am now in, in bali almost 18 months later doing again whatever it is i'm doing now it's kind of hard mm. to tell wow wow so before we hit record you, you mentioned that you just finished reading the the polyvagal theory by stephen porch and i'm curious if if their description of of like a dorsal vagal shutdown kind of resonates with your experience of what you just described of opening the, the computer and like mm. feeling disassociated and not really being able to engage with life. Did that, did that resonate with you when you were, when you were reading? I think so. I think what happened was that in the panic attack, 
phase, I went through kind of too much sympathetic chain, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And I was I was lying in bed kind of almost imagining all the options I didn't have. And my the narrative that built up was one of helplessness and there's no good move here and you know it's all too difficult and and mm. i think that led to a shutdown so i think it does map on of the the dorsal vagal state that they talk about mm. of you know you're this antelope in the jaws of the lion and you play dead kind of mode <laughs> in the hope that the lion will let you drop let you go and that's kind of how it felt it was just a high apathy shutdown nothing mm. of the world I used to inhabit makes sense anymore. And yeah, that that didn't just go away overnight. It took some time to gradually ease off to a point where I could function decently mm. again. Sure. Sure. I, I like the phrase or, or the phrase that you use of like, there's no good move here. And and it almost seems like the trajectory that you've been on in the last kind of year, year or so has almost been like expanding your repertoire or the menu of moves that you can make in, mm. at, in any one moment. And it's almost like as a kind of response to that in, in some ways. Yeah, I think so. It, it touches on an idea I'm playing with from Alizan technique, which I'm calling goodness. That's could, not good. C-O-U-L-D. And I didn't coin the term. It's actually either one of my, the AT trainees from the training course or, or Tashin Fogelman, who many people may know on Twitter. They had a, an argument about who, who coined it, but I'm going to use it anyway. And goodness is the moment by moment knowing that you could do something. You could go somewhere. You could think something. You could say something. I remember when you and I met actually in, in Bali, you know, you someone you suggested screaming into a pillow to, to do some emotional processing, and I realized, oh, I actually have quite low goodness around this. I don't think I could scream into a pillow in this restaurant. <laughs> Eventually, I did, and I, oh, I do have the goodness actually. Um, but it, it felt it felt that night like I had no goodness. The, the amount of goodness was at local minimums, at zero point. I know it's just nothing I could do. Besides, mm. I guess, kind of allow the flow of time and consequences of my choices to play out almost so it's like i've i've set the balls in motion hmm. i've gone into the shutdown state i'm going to kind of like ride the rapids as a, a limp gazelle rather than <laughs> if that metaphor works <laughs> as opposed to kind of engaging so, in the process yeah. a very haunting poetic way to view dorsal shutdown <laughs> i like it <laughs> beautiful well i think one of the many reasons that i'm excited to finally have this conversation is I, like I, I almost have this this sense that we're both walking similar path or at least like converging to similar spaces. It's it's almost like I don't know if you've seen the the old maps drawn in the 1600s where the cartographers drew like here be dragons in like yeah. certain parts of the map, and and it's almost like I feel like we're both sailing into this the terra incognita, but on mm. like different ships, and there's like so many overlaps and intersections between these between these territories so i'm curious to hear from you it sounds like you've since you've been in bali you've been kind of exploring the nervous system more like what what are some of the interesting overlaps that you're seeing or what are you what are you interested in right now Mm. there's a couple of things so i've been i've been enjoying the the one-on-one facilitated breath repatterning that Mm -hmm. i believe you're trained in as well here in bali and it's such a fascinating experience to have, to be guided into a state, which is essentially an altered state of consciousness, and then have someone facilitate to do hands-on practice. I can see a lot of overlaps with the Alizana technique, kind of hands-on stuff, which I don't do much myself because of the online context. But the idea of, hey, I'm seeing some kind of held pattern here. I'm seeing something that you might not realize that you're actually doing to yourself, some long-standing holding and oh if you're in the state i can just kind of go in there 
and encourage a releasing of that thing, then suddenly you can explore what it's like to not be doing the thing you've always been doing. And it can feel very unfamiliar to, to let go of these things, particularly if they've been there forever or since very young. But then very often what I'm finding with the breathwork and in AT is that as you let go of the holding, you realize actually it's safe to let go now, perhaps. So there's a link to why is it they're holding in the first place? And then afterwards, there's a always a greater sense of ease, lightness, freedom, and more goodness. Like, oh, this thing I've been mm. tightly gripping onto for so long is just actually getting in the way, perhaps. Or mm. I need to kind of convince this thing that it's actually okay now to let go. So that's that's one thing. And in terms of the the awareness stuff for the, the breathing as well, I have found that I can use the two together almost. So there's a tendency in the breath work I find for the, my awareness to want to collapse into the experience of like, oh, I'm, I'm having this experience in my, in my, my, my imagination or like body sensations and kind of go in and do something with it. But there's another move that I, I get from AT, which is okay, no, zoom out, don't interfere, allow whatever's happening to happen. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I do that move, more seems to happen. I mm -hmm. kind of go deeper or something shifts or something of this nature. So mm -hmm. it really feels like there's intersection, but I haven't done enough breath work yet to to go deep. But I'm, I am toying with asking Ed whether uh, there's space on the, the shredding program next year, <laughs> because Amazing. it does seem really cool. Yeah, no, I, I think that would be fantastic. Okay, so for, for listeners here, I guess it would be helpful mm -hmm. to give a little bit of context. So from my side, I know that since I've taken your course and been reading a lot of your essays, I've almost started to view life through this lens of expanded or collapsed awareness and there's something that you that you wrote that i loved you said that awareness has a variable shape and size and learning to control it is a powerful skill so mm. i'd love for you to just like unpack that a little bit like what, what do you or, or expand on that to use a good pun <laughs> <laughs> oh man there's so much here if i start rambling please ask questions or cut me off because i could go on with this for hours great go um, for it. so First of all, I should talk about what I mean by awareness. And for those who have read The Mind Illuminated by Chuladasa, I'm using the same attention and awareness frame that he uses. So awareness is the set of things that you are able to notice if they were noticeable, if you like. So the experience of if someone calls your name and it's audible, sometimes you notice it, sometimes you just don't notice it. And it's not to do with how loud they are. You can hear it either way, but mm -hmm. you know, you can you can become aware of it or available to it. And that field of awareness, the, the field of things that you're able to notice can change in size and shape. So let's do the, the size one first. In, in the course, and I'll, I'll run the same trick on your listeners if you don't mind. Great. I, I, I have a, a, a prompt, which is, hey, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to find an object around you that you could pick up. And then I ask, are you already looking for this object? And most people say, yeah, my brain went off and I'm looking for the object. And I say, well, look, even though I said in a minute, I'm going to ask you to do this, most people's brains kick in and go like, oh, I could be a good student. I can get ahead of the game. I can, I have a thing to do now. And, you know, all this stuff. It's like, don't think of an elephant almost. Mm -hmm. And what often comes with this is a collapse in spatial awareness, a collapse in capacity to notice other things. And spatial is the easiest one to notice, but there are other other spaces, if you like, in which awareness collapses. So conceptual space, imaginal space, felt sense space, all these things. And you just kind of collapse down into, into the process of looking for an object on the table in front of you. Your world gets smaller as you as you engage in that task. So that's the, the spatial one. And you can, that's the, the, the smaller one. The shaping one is, is more interesting, I find, because it's less easily noticed until someone points it out. So my example for this is, 
imagine you're at some kind of party or networking event when they were a thing and you're engaged in like a really interesting conversation with like three people you're in a small group and it's you're in flow and it's great and in fact your awareness has kind of collapsed around that group because you're, you're ignoring the rest of the, the conference almost and then you, you notice there's someone on the edge there's some some fifth person angling kind of wanting to join your your group your conversation but you you're kind of either you realize or your group realizes that now is not a good time to to bring someone in because it will break the flow so what do you do well you're not maybe not consciously but you shape your awareness around them such that your group is in it and this person mm. on the edge is not mm. and then there's a very interesting move that you make when you kind of all decide okay now is a good time to bring them in you you expand mm. you reshape the awareness to include them and then you know they can join but what's interesting about this is how immediately we can tell this is happening mm. so if you're on the inside of that group you know what it's like you know what it feels like to cut this person out and kind of just keep them on the periphery push them away with your awareness slightly and then if you're on the other side you know what it's like not to be included you know very well that you're not in that group and then when the switch happens you know very well that you suddenly are in that group mm. and it's you know, combination of eye contact and other stuff, but you could do the same move without moving a muscle, I think. Mm. And then they would feel part of it. They would feel like they're in the group. So that's where, that's how my example for, for shaping, but we do this all the time as well. Like you can tell trainees and as our technique or most humans that you're not aware of the space behind you because our, our eyes look forwards. Our world is mostly forward and down. Mm. So we lose awareness of the space behind and above in particular. So that's an unconscious shaping, but you can, expand in a direction if you like rather than globally which you can do as well mm. yeah I, I love that example and that was actually a big like a really interesting thing for me to, me to play with was like breathe particularly breathing into like my back and bringing mm. awareness to my back body and then also the space behind me and then how mm. how much more energizing and, and also relaxing the breath can be when it, you're only kind mm. of breathing into the the back of your heart um mm. And, and another thing that, that really helped this to click for me was I was with a mutual friend of ours, Charlie, and she, mm. she invited me to read a poem with kind of having my awareness like narrowed and collapsed into the poem itself. And then again, with mm. as like a wide an awareness as I could, as I could muster. And mm. it was, it was almost like I couldn't see the individual words, but yet somehow I was still able to read what was on the page. Mm. And, and I noticed that I felt like my, my voice and my presence was, was so much more, I guess it was projected in a much more compelling and, and charismatic way. Mm. Um, and it was, it was really interesting and it was so palpable, the, the shift. And, and I'm sure that this is something that you, that you've witnessed yourself. And as you've even been teaching this, like, how have you used mm. the Alexander technique with the way that you're, that you present yourself, the way you're speaking right now, perhaps mm. how's it, how's it helped you? Yeah. So the, the zooming out thing that you're talking about, the expanding awareness thing, I associate with a, how do I put this? a reduction in efforting almost. Mm -hmm. So the more, the more like I try, the more collapsed the awareness and the more I'm, I'm almost forcing something. I'm, I'm trying really hard in the sense that, you know, I'm tensing my muscles to read a book kind of thing, you know, and that's obvious nonsense, but it's stuff that we, we do habitually anyway. And this zooming out is a way of turning down some of that process so right now mm -hmm. i'm yeah i'm expanded i'm aware of the room behind me actually it helps that i have the zoom thing showing me the the picture behind me as a reminder <laughs> and in this spaciousness other stuff is able to emerge so 
I've done quite a lot now of ad-libbing on YouTube and all of my course videos are one take with no scripts or, or like a couple of full starts, but they're mostly one take. And what I find is that the words just appear. I'm at no point really am I coordinating, okay, the next point I'm going to make is this and then this and then this. I find that because I'm open in this spacious way, I can notice those things as they appear in my awareness of, oh, you could say this, oh, you could say this, you could go here. And then I can just pick them. I'm like, oh, that's a good one. Yeah, no, I'll do that one later, <laughs> almost. And because I'm not trying so hard, there's less tension in my body. I think that's probably what brings about the, the vocal tone, the general sense of calmness mm -hmm. that might come along with these things. Mm -hmm. But they also, you mentioned the, uh, I guess, the being more interesting or some mm. worse that effect. More like charismatic, yeah. Charismatic, exactly. And this is an effect you can see quite clearly with stage actors. There's often a moment where one of the actors will walk out and just look up into the audience and say nothing. <laughs> but everyone is kind of, they've got rapt attention on this person. They are intrinsically interesting and charismatic. Mm. And they've said nothing, they're just looking up. Mm. But they're not just looking up, they're expanding their awareness out into the space to include all the awarenesses looking back at them, mm -hmm. and able to hold that state of being seen. And that I think, we find very, very interesting, charismatic as, as people. So when people are giving talks, they're a bit nervous, they often, and I'll do it to you now for the benefit of anyone who has access to the video. If I close off from the camera, then I, I suspect I'm now much less interesting to look at. I've just forgotten that you exist. Yeah, I'm just gonna and it's not just eye contact. Yeah, <laughs> it's not just eye contact. It's, there's, there's something about talking to you and knowing that you're an awareness looking back at me, much like my experience of you is now, mm -hmm. and engaging at that level rather than seeing you either as, you know, an image in front of me in person or some pixels or camera lens. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. And it, it makes me think of the times when I've facilitated workshops and there is this sense of you're almost kind of almost like like a like a conductor in an orchestra. You're kind of like moving mm. the energy and the awareness and and playing with that. And maybe kind of there's times when you close it off, there's times when you really open it up. And that's mm. I think part of what keeps things interesting. So that that feels like a good segue into I was just reading a, a post of yours that I think was published yesterday or or, or today mm. around grinding. And this is something I, I really want to dig into because it's something that my meditation mentor, this guy, Michael King, he described the grind as, as over-efforting. Mm -hmm. And I think you wrote that you wrote the exciting truth is that you accomplish most goals in life automatically and effortlessly. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that a lot of listeners might almost be offended by this kind of as, <laughs> as I was like the first time that I heard this from Michael, my mentor, yeah. and they might be like, like, fuck you, Michael. Like I worked hard for these goals that I achieved. Like, don't take that away from me. Um, mm -hmm. hard work has got me to the position that I'm, I'm, I'm in. So what would you, what might you say to that? Like, how would you respond to someone who's like, like, I, I need to, I need to grind. Like it's, it's got me mm. to achieve what I've achieved today. I guess my first observation is that everything in life involves a goal. I'm going to have a sip of water right now. And look, mm -hmm. I have achieved my goal because <laughs> the world is now different from how it was before I took a sip of water. There's water in me and there's not water in this cup and my thirst is quenched. How hard did I have to work for that to happen? Well, not particularly because my entire system is a goal achieving machine. It sees how the world is. It sees, it can figure out how I want the world to be different. Mm. And then it can coordinate itself to make that happen. Mm. So why is it that in certain domains, 
we go like, oh no, this is a thing I have to grind at. I can't just allow and trust that the system that can do most other things without trying, this thing I have to work hard at. And I, I, I'm curious what the, the narratives are behind that of the you know, lack of self-trust of, well, clearly I can move my hand. Clearly I can think. And again, thinking doesn't require efforting, doesn't require muscle tension, doesn't require tightening the eyes, doesn't mm. require breathing differently. In fact, most of those things, as I'm sure you can attest from the nervous system perspective, will interfere with high quality thinking, for example. Like if your breathing is shallow and you're tight, then you'll probably have lower access to good cognition. Mm-hmm. So, so very often I found that if you can learn to let go of that extra stuff, you can access a state where you will achieve your goals almost by watching yourself do it. It's a sense mm-hmm. of, I set the intention and then... I in I use a technical term from AT of inhibit my habitual responses or I'll inhibit my desire to grind, to over effort. And then hey, look, my my hands are moving, my fingers are typing, my thoughts are flowing, and I'm I don't need to be as involved as I think I need to be. It almost mm. seems like there are different parts of the brain that actually do things, and the mm. part that thinks about doing things doesn't really do all that much. It just <laughs> it just kind of like gets in the way sometimes. N- narrates and gives irrelevant exactly. commentary on what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But how how do you catch a ball? You just you just do it. The harder you try to catch a ball, the more likely you are to fumble it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something that came to mind for me as, as you were just speaking is I think I, I I had a kind of resistance to the word goal for a while. And I, I prefer or I I choose to prefer the word intention. And mm-hmm. for me, goal, it has these connotations of like grasping and trying and, and pushing. Mm-hmm. Whereas intention is more just like there is an impulse or a desire to go in a certain direction. And mm-hmm. then there's more spaciousness or more allowing as to how that will actually unfold because the mind might mm-hmm. not even know in the same way as the mind. The mind doesn't know how to catch a ball necessarily. It just kind of happens. Mm-hmm. Um I like the word intention. It is more spacious and more like unfixed, if you like. And there's a, a parallel here with awareness. So hmm. again, from the Alessandro Technique frame, the more you care about or fixate on the goal, the more that your awareness collapses onto that goal. And to go back to the other term we used before, you, you lower your goodness. Like mm-hmm. If you're fixating on, I want to write the best essay in the world now, then you couldn't do other stuff. Right. You, you are, first of all, one level, you couldn't get up and walk away, but you also couldn't write a different essay. You couldn't be like, okay, well, I'm on the wrong track here because your awareness excludes those things because you're so fixated on the goal. So, what that does is it changes the way that we engage in goal achievement almost or mm-hmm. moving towards the intention. Our entire body mind changes the more fixated we are on something, mm-hmm. normally to interfere with the natural capacity to actually do things. With an intention, you're like, well, okay, I have an intention to to write this essay and I hold it lightly almost. And I could do something else. I could change my mind. I could make it a YouTube video if I wanted to. And having that spacious ability to move around in the, the possibility space, if you want to call it that, changes how you show up because mm-hmm. you're not forcing, you're not grinding so hard and it's the, the easier stuff comes out. So mm-hmm. it's a very counterintuitive idea for most people who are caught up in the grind set but actually, the harder you try, you will reduce your performance in many cases. And trying less, but mm. having a clear intention of like, okay, I, I do want to go that way, mm. but I'm not going to force it, will give you access to the kind of stuff that you actually want to achieve that goal in in a, in a pleasant way that might have better results. Mm. Yeah, it, it's a pretty radical 
shifts compared to I think how most of us have been raised and conditioned do you think that like let's say someone listening let's say they want to write a book or self-publish mm. a book like, do you think that do you think that there'd almost be like a a period of time where it's almost like changing the fuel tank where they're like learning mm. how to write or how to work from this place of non-doing where maybe the productivity actually or like the writing output goes down but then over time they kind of sink in and maybe soften into this more easeful way of doing things because i mean it sounds very appealing it's like mm. achieve all your goals without doing it without efforting i mean yeah, great yeah. but i yeah I, i'm kind of wondering like how does this look practically in in mm. your own experience so of course there's skill acquisition so the better you are at catching a ball the more likely you are to trust your system to catch the ball mm-hmm. when it comes to say writing a book yeah, you'll have to change your habits. You'll have to be okay with discomfort of not knowing what to write. And there will be experiences of like, ugh, this sucks. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is, is not that you can never go into those states and there's not value in those states, but it's valuable to be able to unfixate from them when you want to. So there's a very big difference between, I have to finish this chapter today, look at all the tension on my face. And well, I'm completely blocked. So I'm going to sit here and say I'm unblocked <laughs> without bringing in that other stuff. Mm. which I will, I will again, like assert without evidence doesn't actually help anything mm. to do with the writing, any yeah. of that muscle tension. So it, I do understand the, but some things have to be hard, shouldn't they? I guess my point is that hardness is not the same as the extra efforting, right? There are different effects that we conflate. Mm-hmm. So even the word effort we, I know we now have to use the word over effort rather than effort. So some effort is required, some energy, some thought, some amount of, of, of being fully involved in the thing is required. But then there's this whole bunch of extra stuff that we layer on thinking it will help. It doesn't help. And it's that stuff mm. that we're going to let go of. I think. Mm. Yeah. I like that. And one, one example that just came to mind for me is I've been getting into like Olympic weightlifting recently and, and cool. deadlifting. And I was, I watched one of your videos in the morning that I, I did some of these deadlifts and I was like, okay, like relax, expand your awareness. And I was able mm. to lift more weight with a kind of relaxed, expanded mm. awareness and no tension. And I thought yeah. that was interesting because it was like, it was obviously heavy, but there wasn't like that over efforting that I think you're mm. saying to you kind of really gets in the way. Yes, exactly. A similar example might be, let's say an Olympic sprinter or something like they are working really, really, really hard. There's a lot of energy going into that, mm. but no more than is required to run as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. There comes a point where muscle tension that doesn't help with running Nothing interferes with the speed yeah, is wasted and that you slow down. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that middle ground of, yeah, be fully committed but relaxed at the same time mm-hmm. and not just relaxed in the kind of, oh, apathetic sense, but, you know, appropriately engaged, if you like. Yeah. And it sounds like you're describing that appropriateness of, well, you, Johnny, the part of you that thinks doesn't actually know how to lift a weight, right? You're going to stand there and say, I'm going to pull, but like, how does that actually happen? Uh-huh. If you just say, okay, I, I intend to lift the weight and then watch as it happens. I'm like, okay, maybe there's more there. Maybe, maybe the part mm-hmm. of you that knows how to lift a heavy weight can be trusted to do it itself. Mm, yeah, I, I love that. And the the two types of relaxedness almost map, I think, to the the ventral vagal kind mm. of safe, safely relaxed and kind of parasympathetic versus the dorsal, which is more of like a collapsed mm. relax relaxedness. And I think, yeah. So something else I wanted to just put out there was I know we've both kind of spoken about the line that was 
I think it was misattributed or it was <clears throat> paraphrased from Victor Frankl's, Victor Frankl's work. And it's, there is a, a gap or there's a space between stimulus and response. And mm. in that space lies your freedom. And it feels mm. like we're both kind of pointing at different ways to expand that space for people like myself through breathing practices, through nervous system regulation, and you through more like awareness-based practices. Mm. What do you, do you have any thoughts on, on that and, and on the overlap? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's a huge part of what we're both doing from my perspective. It's almost interfering, interrupting the conditioned response pattern almost. Mm. So in the Alizan technique frame, there's the idea of a faulty sensory appreciation that I'll just talk through, which is when he actually, Alexander called this debauched kinesthesia, which I think is a great term, but that's debauched <laughs> kinesthesia. Wow. Yeah. I can see why they didn't so, catch on necessarily. <laughs> that's very, very Edwardian, but uh, wow. essentially the idea being that the things that you do a lot habitually become familiar, they feel familiar and things that are familiar feel right. So let's say that you habitually push your pelvis forwards, right? So that's that's how you stand. It's a bit locked. That that will feel perfectly fine to you because that's that's your habit. That's how you do it. That's how it always is, and it feels right. Your mm. your kinesthesia is recalibrated to this being normal. If an AT teacher comes along, or someone else comes along, and kind of says, "What if your hips preferred being just a bit further back?" You know, with the hands on touch, and by the, what a camera saw, you were more aligned. But your internal sense might be, oh, my hips are really far back, my butt's sticking out, I feel really unstable. This is this feels wrong, in fact, mm. as opposed mm. to it feels right. Mm. Then you'll often use your sense of what feels wrong and right to guide you back into what feels right, mm. but which might not actually be constructive for you. Mm. So if all this is happening below conscious awareness, you don't really have that much choice because you can't make a choice if something isn't noticeable by you, if you're just like in the groove of habit, ultimately. So what AT does is shows you how to, first of all, notice that these unfamiliar things are showing up and then how to stay in that unfamiliar place for long enough for recalibration to occur ultimately mm. so that you don't just go straight into your habit. Now I teach this in an awareness frame. Others do it, mostly do it through hands-on touch directly and you have experience in the lesson. But if I can show people how to say, okay, I'm about to do X. I, I notice I'm about to do the thing I always do. And in the way I teach, that comes with a collapse of awareness. Okay, my awareness is collapsing into the thing I always do. What's going on here? This is interesting. Pause, re-expand, and stay there, mm. ultimately, and see what changes. And okay, well, I appear to be doing the thing. I still can do the thing if I want to. It's not saying um, you mustn't do what you're going to do, but it also means you can do something else if you want to. Mm. It gives you that choice again. So mm. I guess I see a similar thing with, with the breath work and the nervous system work is that you're getting in quite directly saying, okay, this is what always seems to happen when, when you do this. What if we find ways of letting the body feel safe and not having to do that this time, or we change that response this one time or a few times such that it doesn't go straight into that next time when mm. you're out in the real world, perhaps. And I'm, mm. I'm speaking for you here, so I'd love to hear your take on, on what exactly it is that you're doing. I really love that. And I think, I mean, two things come to mind. One is that like my, <clears throat> my experience of, of breathwork journeys is, I, I think Michael Pollan used this, used this metaphor, but it's a really good one. And it's this idea of like, there are these kind of ski piste tracks that we're used to going down, like red runs, black mm. runs, etc. And these practices almost like, they're almost like adding fresh powder snow 
on top nice. of those tracks. So when you're at the top, you can go down that same route if you want to, but there's more expanded like goodness, I guess. There's, mm-hmm, there's more mm-hmm. possibilities available. And I think that's that's what's happening for me in the breathwork journeys is you're expanding the capacity and flexibility and dynamism of the breath. And mm. as as Ed will will tell you if you ever meet up with him, like how we breathe is is how we live. And there are correlations between the access to the number of breathing patterns that we have and the access to the kind of emotional spectrum that we're able mm-hmm. to express. And so the way that I think of these breathwork journeys is it's almost like you're intentionally kind of going into unfamiliar, like you were saying, like unfamiliar breathing rhythms, kind of holding someone safely or titrating them into the discomfort and like reminding them, okay, like it's safe to be here. Like you can breathe into your left pelvis or, you know, whatever it Mm. is that isn't natural for them. And with that, you know, sometimes there's emotional releases. And then usually on the the other side, there's some like sense of, of peace, calmness, connection, and expanded Mm -hmm. awareness again. And like, and like a sense Mm -hmm. of, ah, like (laughs) I've just, I've just found something that wasn't previously accessible. Exactly. I love that. That comes, and then the other thing that I think is interesting to touch on is like a really big piece that I'm focusing on and almost like wanting to, to preach in a certain way is, is this idea of interoception, which mm. is uh, the word interoception. It I, literally just translates to inner awareness, mm-hmm. kind of meaning awareness in interoception. And I, I guess what, like what I'm realizing now is, is that interoception is almost just like a, like a subset of one's capacity to be aware and so there mm-hmm. is such a relate an interception you know typically is defined to sense sensing tracking and feeling inside your your internal in, inner landscape but that can yeah. also be you know just outside your body i mean that's i guess that's extraception if you're referring to how your environment is shaping your state but there is such a and, and i really view those two things of interception as extraception as being foundational to the practices that I'm sharing, because if someone, someone might have all the right breathing practices and know how to do spinal decompression or whatever it is, but if they're not sufficiently aware of their internal landscape, that they don't, they're not going to think to do that practice or that protocol because they're not going to be aware that they're feeling a certain way. So Mm. I'm really thinking about like, what are ways to cultivate this sense of expanded interoception all right i'll pause there that was a bit of a that was a bit of a journey monologue <laughs> no that was that was awesome there's so much to pick up on there's a risk that i'll i'll, I'll forget what i wanted to say but we'll come back i'm sure to whatever go, it comes up yeah go for the it. the thing the thing that stood up from early in what you were saying actually was the idea of the the the, the tracks that you get mm. stuck in i just wanted to kind of touch on that mm-hmm. because let's say that you realize that you're stuck in one particular track you have a track that you always follow i think most people look at that thinking okay this this track is not great I want to have a different track. So what they do is they they work hard to lay down new tracks. Now they can go over there, right? But we're talking about a very different move, which is get out of the tracks completely, right? It's, you know, you're not bound to any tracks because they're all still tracks. So both hmm. the AT move inhibition, unfixation, what you're talking about, like showing hmm. people that they can just not do what they always do hmm. doesn't necessarily mean you have to do this. It means that you're available to do anything that comes up and that's a very different way of being. Mm-hmm. I, I talk about this actually on, on Twitter of doing and doing nothing are the same thing because they're both doing. The absence of doing 
is very different from doing nothing. I can lie on the ground doing nothing. Mm. <laughs> and that would be very different from just lying on the ground, mm. you know, and people often just don't see that. So they think, oh, I have to, I have to relax. Okay. How do I relax? I have to do relaxation. Like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Relaxation is the absence of tension. It's not, it's not like doing something new because that's more tension ultimately. Mm. So that's just one thing I wanted to pick up on. I just love that, that image that you use there. That's beautiful. And what what came to mind for me as you were saying that is just to reflect back, like I really feel like you are translating or you're almost like a bridge for like the, the Tao Te Ching and a lot of like Eastern ideas and wisdom. And you're, <clears throat> to my mind at least, like conveying them in a way that feels very relatable. Like I thought of the line, it's I think it's like the man does nothing. And yet everything mm. is, and nothing is left undone. And it's this yes. kind of like quite esoteric, like Taoist phrase, but I think the way you just described it, like it, you can see how it, it's almost just when you just remove any tension that might've been created. And there is also mm. that interesting relationship. I don't know if you found this when meditating, but sometimes when a thought arises, there might be a corresponding like emotion, like a, a clench somewhere. It's just super mm. subtle, but like some like mm. tightening in the body. And it does seem like there's a, there's an interesting relationship going on there. I think so. And I think partly what's going on here is that we don't, we almost don't trust or we don't feel safe exploring what it's like to fully go into not that non, that not mm-hmm. doing state. It's scary. Because yeah. it's kind of, I'm reminded of various words in Buddhism of, oh, the void, you know, oh, this, if, if I, if I stop doing these things, I'll just find void and uh, you can mm-hmm. easily go into nihilism at that point. Mm-hmm. But what I've actually found in these practices is that the more I non-do, the more I let go of whatever part of me it is that's adding this layering on of doings, mm-hmm. the more that the world, the more the world gets more spacious, vivid, bright, just mm-hmm. intense and just turned up to 11 almost. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's not that I've kind of shut down. You don't go into, I guess, the, the dorsal state of like, well, I'm doing nothing. So I'm a puddle on the floor. It's actually, there's more available because there's something else that shows up in the absence of me trying to do it somehow, which is mm-hmm. very counterintuitive unless you've sort of, you experienced it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this comes back to just touch on your intero and exteroception mm. is part of the benefit of having those exceptions, if you like, is <laughs> that, you, that you can notice doings. You can notice that emotional clench that you just talked about and saying, okay, what was that? I just noticed this very subtle thing that I'm doing or some part of me is doing. Can I put that down? Mm. And if you can't notice the clench in the first place, you can't put it down. I had this experience recently. I've been seeing a body worker who you recommended here in Bali, who is an absolute mm-hmm. wizard. Mm-hmm. And since then, my my hips have been doing funny things in a good way. That's big um, Yeah. <laughs> and so just for context, I've had awful knee issues since I was 11. So full dislocations, multiple surgeries, unstable instability and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And realizing that my, my hips have been compensating for that and perhaps even causing issues for a long time because of the lack of safety, kind of gripping, tightening, trying to keep mm. things stable. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a stretch a couple of weeks ago and suddenly for the first time in years worth of, of physio and stretching, mm. I finally got the sense of, oh, I'm doing this. I'm doing the holding. Some part of me is doing the tightening. It's not just that muscle is short. Mm. It's that some deep part of me is really holding on. Mm. And as soon as I noticed that, and what that felt like, I was able to test different moves, if you like, different inhibitory type moves of, mm-hmm. okay, is this letting go? No, not quite. Is this it? And eventually I found, oh, it's this. This is what it feels like. This is what I have to do as a mental move to stop holding this muscle. Mm-hmm. And it was a very strange feeling, but it then became familiar. It's like, oh, it's just this. But that this wasn't 
there for me before. I, I, I couldn't do this because I hadn't noticed that landscape existed. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, I'm making much bigger progress with my, with my hips. So yeah, the deception of I'm doing the thing. That's interesting. Can I put the thing down is a really valuable move that opens up an awful lot in life. I found. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I, I love that. And what came to mind for me is, as you were sharing was I had a, I had a really powerful psychedelic journey on, on mushrooms about, about a year ago now. And I remember towards the end, just doing some stretching and finding that I had about like twice as much flexibility in my hamstrings mm. and my hips than in a, like a normal kind of state of consciousness. And it just really showed to me how much, like you said, this holding that we have is, is being done kind of consciously to some degree, or it's some sense of the body's protection mechanism to keep us safe. Mm. And I think you're right that the more that we explore our, our, our kind of somatic awareness in this way, the more it becomes obvious of like what is actually happening, almost like mm. that the the iceberg kind of goes from maybe we have like two percent access to like maybe three or four <laughs> percent yeah yeah exactly and then you start to realize oh there's cause and effect stuff happening beneath what i was realizing i was just seeing the effects at the top ultimately and kind of wondering what was going on totally um, yeah totally so I, one I'd thing love i to... just want to add actually before we go because in case people yeah, yeah. about the, the hip example in case think people think I'm, I'm doing things my body i shouldn't be doing there was a there was a sense when i got to that hip moment of the hip almost asking permission or like, sorry, mm. checking for checking for like, is this safe rather? So like, Oh, you want me to do this? Are you sure? Is this okay? And I'm, I'm kind of checking like, yeah, I, th- I think it's okay. We're doing lots of physiotherapy. And you know, what, mm. what do you think? Do you think it's okay? And we kind of like agreed between me as the observer narrator and my hip as the kind of tight hurt thing, maybe the, mm. the inner child of most who needed to to do that mm. saying, okay, no, I think it's safe now. Yeah, it's safe. Okay. It's safe. And then we, we, of agreed to play together to let that tension go and it seemed fine it wasn't me going and saying you must let go of this tension i've i'm mm. dictating to you that i want my hips to be free mm. right it's that's not mm. how it seems to work ultimately and it mm. kind of goes back to that if i just try hard enough grind set thing mm-hmm. which i don't think is necessarily constructive it might get results like grinding does work right in most cases you, like, you might burn out at some point but there is technical debt that you incur there's karmic load that you incur by doing that i think Mm. that you have to unwind later on Mm. yeah i'm really glad you mentioned that and what came to mind for me is is part of my own like journey i guess on this was i I kind of became obsessed with the idea of like letting go and to the point where i then ironically was like striving and trying to like let like forcing myself to let go (laughs) and i i remember having a there was this image of like i had this like in my mind there was like a a river and i had like one foot on the raft and one foot on the land and like gradually like got the confidence to like put okay both feet on on the raft i'm now kind of going down the river and then i was like okay this was during a breathwork journey and i was like okay Mm. I'll, I'll let go even more. And I kind of got off the raft and I was like clinging onto the raft in the river. And I was like, Oh God, this feels feels kind of scary. And then (laughs) the final thing felt like this was the most interesting one where it didn't feel like I did anything. It just kind Mm -hmm. of happens. And then it was this sensation of like merging with the river. (laughs) It's the best way that I can describe (laughs) it, but it was so interesting that it, it, and, and I think this is actually a, a misconception around letting go because like letting go, it does imply you you then like fall into the void. But my experience mm. was almost like being caught or held in this place of 
connection and it, it just it felt mm. beautiful like it was it mm. was blissful and joyful and i think let, letting go feels scary but it's, it's almost like you're not letting go but you're just dropping that thing to fall back into this sense of like mm. peace and connection at least that was does that resonate at all it, it does yeah there's a couple of things i can pick up on that the first is the idea of the, the void is so interesting, right? The letting go and then being afraid that you'll just fall into this void when it's more like you're letting go of the separation, the fake separation, and then you realize that you are the void and it's actually, it's fine, right? It's, <laughs> that's more of the move that is being made there. And it's not something you can do. The more mm-hmm. you do, the more you build up the separation almost, or the more you embed yourself in in the, the illusion to use these Buddhist language. And you kind of see this play out in, I've seen this play out in the AT training frame in which I've come from. So most of my, because I don't don't have a full-time practice myself, I teach online. Most of my kind of in-person stuff is training other trainees to become teachers almost, kind of playing in that kind of quite on, quite edgy, like let's play with our like edges of AT training stuff. And you often see trainees come in and like one month they'll say, oh, I know what AT is. It's, I just have to be aware of the space around me. And that's, that's it. That's easy. And then it stops working. And then the month after that, like, oh, I know what it is. I have to be able to go anywhere at any moment. I have a high goodness. Okay, fine. That works for a month and then it goes away. And what I now tell trainees is that the ones who are kind of more advanced is that Alessandra technique is the skill of letting go of what you thought it was over and over again. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the ability to unfixate <laughs> even from the unf- the thing the unfixation doing yeah. that you do. So, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the harder you try to let go, you've turned letting go into a doing. The finger pointing at the moon off. isn't the moon. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly uh-huh. it. Um, and my my clearest experience of this, I think, was because we become more aware of the, the background doings, almost these patterns of doing that have been mm-hmm. running for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. At one point when in my training, I noticed that I have a or had a bizarre background process that was kind of doing the world. That I believe, for whatever reason, that I had to do something for the world to exist. Mm. And this came with a corresponding pattern of muscle tension and mm. some cycle in my brain that was like, if I don't effort in this particular way, the world will end. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I thought, well, that's done. <laughs> can I can I put that one down? Can I like can I stop do can I inhibit that, that the thing that is doing the world? That's a big one. And yeah, the more that I did that, the more I just stepped into this vast spaciousness and sense of oneness with everything mm. and you know, becoming the void almost. And it wasn't empty. It was just, I guess it's this roaring silence almost, this very loud, vivid, mm. bright thing as opposed to nothingness. But mm. that came not by me trying for it, but by putting down <laughs> some subtle layer of doing that was interfering with that experience. I love that. And I was, <clears throat> I was reading some of the testimonials of people who've taken your course and and one of the themes seemed to be that people reported feeling a sense of of like wonder and awe Mm. and it's that sounds like it's very connected to the experience that you're describing where maybe what you're describing is is like the far or the further end of the spectrum of like i think of it as like curiosity and then and then Mm. light wonder and then maybe awe and rapture Mm. like the deeper down you go you go into that experience I think so. And I'm still on the journey myself. It's not like I'm w- constantly walking around in, in rapt awe, but I'm getting better at seeing how I get in the way because uh-huh. you know, we all have these patterns. But what you're saying there reminds me of Joe Hudson's view uh, mm-hmm. framework, 
So for those who don't know, it's vulnerability, impartiality, empathy, and wonder, which are four ways of pointing at a state of mind, which he calls it. It's not a technique, it's a it's a way of being, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I see huge overlaps. I've just done his connection course, which is excellent. I see huge overlaps between his stuff and, and Alexander Technique, where the state he's pointing at through view, I feel is a cessation of doings that interfere with the view state. So vulnerability is cessation mm-hmm. of guarding and defensiveness. Impartiality is cessation mm-hmm. of judgment. Empathy mm-hmm. is cessation of blending with the person that you're with. And wonder is a cessation of having to know the answer, mm-hmm. almost. So when you realize that, oh, hey, I'm doing mm-hmm. these things that are interfering, I can put them mm-hmm. down and this state emerges. Mm-hmm. And there are other ways in, obviously, and like Joe is talking about. But the fact that people can learn to notice spaciousness in a course and then walk around the park going, wow, look at this amazing day. It's like, well, of course, you didn't notice it before. <laughs> you know, it was always there. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I really love that connection. So something that I'd like to, and you kind of touched on this earlier, <clears throat> and in, in some ways, it does feel central to what both of us to this landscape that both of us are exploring and it's this idea of aliveness Mm. so how how would you how do you currently think about and define aliveness and and if let's say that you were guiding me to increase my aliveness as i'm talking to you like what would be some of the prompts that you might give from from the lens and the frame that you're you're operating through that's a, such a good question. And it's one very much at the edge of my thinking right now, because I know what it is. And it's incredibly hard to put this thing into words in a way that doesn't sound trite. But I have a few, I have a few ways of in getting it now. So at the edge of woo. <laughs> at the, well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of define woo as things that are hard to talk about, not hard to describe with words, like ineffable, mm-hmm. as opposed to necessarily not unsupported by, by evidence or by the physical world. So it's an yeah. interesting one. Yeah. So First of all, I'll talk about what I've seen as aliveness in the Alessandro training. Mm-hmm. It's almost like there are two states. The habitual common one is a combination of collapsed awareness, reduced goodness from early on, lack of a kind of passivity, and a, like a one percent dissociation, almost kind of a, a sense of not really being there. Mm. You can tell when we ask someone a question, perhaps, or you know, what did you have for lunch? They go off somewhere in their heads to answer the question. Mm-hmm. And when they go off, they're not here almost. And teachers can tell this very quickly of like, hey, you've gone somewhere, come back. You've gone somewhere, come back. And it's a very strange experience to be caught mid being somewhere off in your head <laughs> by someone saying, hey, you come back. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> that, that was weird. <laughs> right. uh, kind of like a, a head spinning experience. And you realize, no, I'm, I'm going off somewhere all the time. I'm learning to bring nothing back. So aliveness is almost the opposite of those things. So I'm now seeing it as my awareness has expanded. I am fully, I'm not only am I here, I am here in all of the space around me. Like my, my self, for want of a better word, is filling up the space that I'm in. And then within that space, I have a high goodness. So let's, let's do a little game right now. Like you're talking to me on a camera I want you to just like focus more on the camera, like forget the world exists and you know, think about the next question you want to ask me. Now, what's that like for you? You have gone rock completely still. Yep. <laughs> you are not moving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's just yep. silence. Yeah. So this is this is the not the thing. So mm-hmm. keep looking at the lens, keep looking at me. But remember that you could stand up. You could move the microphone away. You could do anything else. You know, you could you know, go off and go outside still talk to me mm-hmm. but remember that you could do these things and then expand your awareness to the further room 
and be able to do anything within that space. Mm-hmm. And now you seem more natural to me. You're moving. There's there's a sense of like you're actually here as opposed mm-hmm. to doing something else. So these are two key components of aliveness. There mm-hmm. are more. For me, there's also intention. So mm-hmm. uh, intention and attention is two similar words. So let's mm-hmm. say that I am a, a hawk or a predator or a lion or something, and I am hunting my prey. I have the intention to eat, if you like, to, to get this thing. And my attention is tracking the thing. And the combination of the intention and the attention turn on this like dynamic, mm. I am really moving through space thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, these things might have their own predators, mm. right? So they want to be aware of the space around them. They want to be aware of the hunter or the other lion coming after them. Mm. And they want to be able to maybe change what they're hunting if they see a, a you know a more appropriate prey nearby they don't be fixated so they'll have a combination of being fully there with a high sense of i can do anything but i'm doing this <laughs> you know and i'm engaged in doing this mm-hmm. really creates this sense of of switched on power almost aliveness mm. that comes across as like i'm definitely here talking to you <laughs> I'm, I'm fully here talking to you right now mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. The, the felt sense of which is is one of agency i think is one of i could go anywhere do anything have you know have any experience and contain it mm. and i'm exerting my will almost on the world i have a goal i'm mm. yeah I'm, I'm moving through this world almost rather than passively watching it um, mm. which i think is a, a bit of a, a different mode sometimes it's, it's yeah. engagement rather than passivity yeah yeah the, the the experience for me that comes up like when i think about the experiential <clears throat> sensation of this aliveness is, is actually mm. holding space for breathwork circles. So if there's mm. say 20 people in a room, there is both this like sense of my awareness being expanded to the full group and to kind of yeah. the 20 nervous systems in the space. And there's also this, it's a very hard, I mean, there is also music as well, which I think kind of like brings it makes the state more conducive but there's this Mm. this sense of like high capacity uh, i guess to meet any particular like big experience that someone might be going into but at Mm. the same time i feel very calm and very relaxed and that's that's and it's one of the reasons why it's such a a fun experience because it does reliably produce this state of kind of intensity and and deep aliveness that is also Mm. like responding to the situation and, and I can also I mean s- this is subjective but I think I can also see in someone breathing like maybe their left foot there's a sense of like mm. aliveness that you can see from the muscle tone of like mm-hmm. if they are aware of their left foot or if their left foot is kind of outside of their awareness and they've disassociated there's something that you can yeah. pick up on that's very hard to put into words but it's definitely noticeable Yes. And the, the hard to put into words thing is kind of, is the point and is also annoying because people ask like, how do you know? Like, I just know. And it sounds, it sounds kind of right. weak, but at the same time, you, you, if you were analyzing it like line by line of like, well, I see, I see that the foot is twitching and I see like this muscle tone, like it just wouldn't work the same way that the whole point is that you are getting a felt sense of this person's felt sense almost. Right. right and that's right. the level at which we're able to operate. It's not, not filtered through the part of the brain that narrates ultimately mm-hmm. and as you were talking it reminded me of the thing we were, we were just talking about before we started recording which is a tantra which the capacity 
And I, for context, Johnny recommended a, a Tantra weekend here in Bali, which he called a six out of 10 on the Bali spicy scale. And it's left me wondering what a 10 looks like because my God. <laughs> um, and We're titrating you in, pendulating you into the into the spice, <laughs> yeah. the spice levels. You can't go straight for 10, exactly. And what I what I loved about, about that was the invitation to know you can feel your emotions fully. You can be like fully there with the raw power and intensity of your anger, with your sadness, with your grief, with your joy, mm. and be unmoved by them almost, but contain them and trust that you can contain them mm. as opposed to what most people seem to do of like, oh no, that's that's too much or we can't go there or like, no, I don't want to do that right now. And this has been me for most of my life because you know, I've just like, oh, I don't like that feeling. I don't want to just distract from that one or just me not too. go there. It's cool um, being British. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we have a lot to undo, don't we? Yeah, we have a, uh, more of a handicap than Americans. So, so yeah, the the ability to channel all of that stuff without getting caught up in a habitual groove that you were talking about earlier that it triggers. Like if I right. feel that that shame or that grief or that whatever, mm-hmm. and it sends me off into the groove that the track that I've mm-hmm. always been in before, I don't have mm-hmm. any choice. And maybe I wouldn't trust that feeling because I know it sends me to a bad place. Mm-hmm. If I can contain that, like that intensity of the emotion and remain unfixated and then go, okay, I want to go a different way with this, this time, or mm. I'm going to do nothing with it. I'm going to sit here and enjoy it or whatever. Mm. Then it's a very different sense of power of, I have power to contain myself and to mm. power to experience everything rather than being fearful mm-hmm. almost of these things and therefore shutting down elements of it or fearful or unfamiliar. Precisely. Yeah. So th- there was a term that you mentioned again before we hit record that I loved and spacious involvement, I think was the mm. phrase. And mm. it's actually something that kind of when, when I work with someone one-on-one in breathwork, the, the real thing to, to train and to practice in the beginning is someone's capacity mm. to be with themselves through these big experiences, because mm. what will often happen is something might arise and then someone will just dissociate or they'll shut down or they'll, they'll go into dorsal. But if someone can hold themselves and kind of stay present through the intensity of whatever that is and, and like feel it, but not get too like sucked into it to mm. the point where they go into story or start looping or, or start emotionally flooding, then that's, that's yeah. really what allows the, the nervous system to complete whatever the buffered emotional response is mm. that's really that's interesting the whole art i guess of of this guiding process yeah i just before we dig into that i want to want to say that spacious involvement term is is not my word it's a fantastic term but it comes from charlie aubrey who's on twitter and runs a runs a group called evolving ground so i saw her mention that yes like, okay this is excellent and i'm going to use it but i don't want to claim credit for a term that isn't mine mm-hmm. um so yeah, spacious involvement. And I want to dig into that nervous system point. It really sounds like from what you're saying that the nervous system has these, these tracks again, mm-hmm. that are well below conscious awareness. So for, for my frame is increase your awareness, notice the tracks, and then learn to kind of step out of them such that you're not in a different track. Ultimately, mm. you're kind of outside of all tracks. But mm. what you're pointing at sounds almost deeper than that of... Mm stuff that is not in my conscious awareness, stuff that only comes up perhaps in these states of altered consciousness from breath work or whatever else. And then you mm. can kind of go in and help with the detrackifying almost. But there's stuff coming from breath work that I hadn't noticed before. Mm. And I'm wondering, is it the breath pattern that surfaces these things that then mm. allows the, the breath work to kind of be, okay, now we're going to play with that thing mm-hmm. a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is fun. So my my sense of the best way that I can think of to articulate this is by dropping into the practice of connected breathing, you're creating a bridge to the subconscious, which is bringing these buffered or inc- these buffered experiences or incomplete reflexes from the lower brain and raising them up to be completed. So an example might be a, a really common example actually is someone might have had a surgery. I think it might have lost you. And you're back. back. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'll just clap and that'll be easy to find. Let me see. So I'll go from <clears throat> a really common example is someone might have had a I think um, it's my it's mine. It's Bali Wi Fi. Sorry, Johnny. My oh, no, I can relate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's back on now, but we'll see. If you want, I can tether to my phone, but um yeah, let's, okay. No, let's keep going. I'm sure it's fine. Maybe That's we'll give it like two more, two more strikes. It was generally like okay. my rule of thumb. <laughs> okay. Cool. So, where was I? Yeah. So a really common way that this shows up is if someone goes into a surgery and they have anesthetic and the process of receiving surgery is, is potentially quite traumatic to certain, whichever part of the body is being operated on. And often what will happen is because of the anesthetic, that kind of experience is then stored in the nervous system and buffered for later. So particularly Mm. if it's like, you know, only a few days after, or if someone has a a, a moped accident, this is really common in in Breathwork Bali journeys where someone would have a scooter accident and then relive that kind of shaking and that kind of very natural trauma response on the breathwork table. And so to connect this to what you were saying, I think it's almost like the process of dropping into this this practice of connected breathing increases the 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 aliveness in the nervous system such that it then brings up these uncompleted tracks Mm. or these these tracks that have been kind of stunted such that they can then be completed and then reintegrated back into the into the system yeah does that does that land for you yeah i think so yeah the idea that there are maybe safety responses or incomplete integration experiences that maybe I can't get out with my practices or it takes, takes time to kind of unpeel the, like the onion almost. Mm-hmm. And like you, you don't go straight there. Perhaps you kind of, you go bit by bit. And I've been mm-hmm. thinking about this in, in person lessons, you get more of what you're describing. So mm-hmm. I've seen trauma responses being triggered just from someone saying, you know, you don't have to hold yourself that way almost, or like you can like interfering that, that holding pattern. And then it's just, it so happens that that holding pattern was part of the, the, the holding from the, the thing that caused the trauma perhaps. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, I don't have to do this. Oh, okay. Stuff is coming up now, mm-hmm. but that doesn't usually happen. And it happens to happen in the online context, mm. but the idea of facilitating the, again, the, the antelope shaking after being released by the lion response that humans don't seem to be able to do or don't know that we should do or don't allow to do or whatever i'm really curious about about bringing some of that stuff into the the alizana technique frame Mm. so there's there's no actual like content in at apart from a few skills that you apply and it's kind of fractal but there's no like oh and then go off and shake kind of thing (laughs) but i'm really curious about Mm. let's say that i find some trauma pattern in my my body from i've had a few surgeries and let's say that something comes up from those Mm -hmm. and I notice, let's say, that I'm 
I'm holding some safety pattern to say, you know, or there's some unprocessed thing. There's, there's a, a, an, angle I can, an angle I can see around. If I inhibit the holding I'm doing, but allow the shaking, for example, mm-hmm. I can then integrate the two things together. So, okay, I want to shake, but I'm inhibiting the thing that's preventing me from not, that's causing me to not shake normally, right. almost. Right. And going this way, I can see a bunch of intersections with other practices right. of almost create, preventing the thing that would interfere with that practice almost right, if it right. were to arise. And mm-hmm. that's exciting for me, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's really well put. It's not that like you kind of set out to deliberately shake necessarily, mm. but more just you really tr- like drop in and trust the wisdom of your body to mm. do whatever it is that it wants to do. And I think part of my journey has almost been like increasing the the potential path that I allow mm. my body to do when I'm in that state such that now, like, in a, I mean, in a recent journey, my left arm started just like going up here, like, <laughs> and I was like, Whoa, what's going on? And it just like started twisting and that went down yeah. to my neck and almost just allowing the body to like unravel itself and almost mm. watching with just like awe and wonder being like, what the, yeah. like, what is going on? This is, this is great. And, and mm. almost always the more that I can kind of get out of that way, get out of the way, the more interesting places it leads to. Mm. So, so I, I'd love to maybe for listeners to kind of give them something that they could maybe practice while they're listening to this or, or after the episode. And, and I love the, the post that you wrote on unscrunching. So oh, yeah. maybe you could kind of speak to that and just use yes. that as like, as an example, as something that listeners can, can take away and, and play with for themselves. Mm, yeah. So the the context for this is that I'm looking for various ways of taking online awareness practices or things I can't do with, with hands-on to show the connection between the awareness practices or the mental move exercises with the body ultimately, because in the AT frame, there's, they're all one thing. It's called psychophysical unity. So body and mind are one process. It's like body, mind, and other, other things. It's not like the body affects the mind or the mind affects the body is that they are the same thing actually. Mm. So we can learn to notice the the correlations there. Mm. I, I um, just just on like I wonder if that yeah. like I actually think like the mind is the nervous system. Mm. Like that's my and it's like uh, the and, and the windows are the senses, which is kind of where we get the nice. input from. But sorry, yeah. anyway, I, I no, I, I I like that. I'd love to I'd love to actually dig into kind of what that means practically speaking, kind of at the body sure. level. But anyway, yeah. the idea of duality between mind and body is a, is a one mm-hmm. that we, we don't do in AT. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, the unscrunching is something I got from one of our guest teachers. And the idea is to show you what cessation is like, what the move of stop doing is like. And because we're not, because the, the, the doing that we're doing most of the time is so familiar, we're not aware that we're doing it because we can't feel it. This is a way of exaggerating that. So the first step is to scrunch everything up right so like tighten all of your muscles scrunch your face up just like muscle tension squeeze your fists and then let go all at once so scrunch and then unscrunch and you can do this a couple of times but it's a very clear sense of you know that you're scrunching you know all the work you're doing to scrunch (laughs) and then you know that you unscrunch Mm -hmm. so when you do this pay really close attention to the moment as or just before you unscrunch and the quality of the mental move, the choice that you make mm. to release the tension. And then the magic of this is that you can do that when you're not perceiving yourself to be scrunching. So you're just sat here unscrunched, you think. And then whatever that, that move is, just assert unscrunch and unscrunch mm. and unscrunch into a bigger space. Mm-hmm. 
And one of the things I teach in the course is that the present moment only lasts for three seconds. You can't be mindful and then cling to mindfulness of the world. It's a dynamic process. You have to keep choosing it. Like, there it is. There mm-hmm. it is. There it is. Choose it. There's the moment. Mm-hmm. And this unscrunching is exactly the same. You don't unscrunch once and stay unscrunched. You, <laughs> it's a choice that you make every couple of seconds. It becomes habitual. Like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just letting go of this thing over and over again into mm-hmm. a bigger space that I'm expanded mm-hmm. into. And people at this point find their spines lengthen their posture changes mm-hmm. and this is all the stuff that traditional Alexander technique points at if you go and google the term you'll find a load of websites talking about posture improvement and movement and that kind of thing and i mean mm-hmm. yes and there's a substrate beneath that such that posture is a really good application of it but it's not the same as it and this is one window into how cessation of holding of mm-hmm. muscle tension leads to or, or kind of collapsing and and slouching even Mm-hmm. leads to a more natural poised the way that your body wants to hold itself rather than how you're imposing things on it way mm-hmm. of being so mm-hmm. just go about your day keep doing this the scrunch thing first to like get a sense of what that move is but then once you have a sense of it just uh, assert unscrunch gently very gently it's not a thing that you do mm-hmm. by definition it's putting down of something that you're doing and that you can you can very easily get stuck as you were saying earlier johnny about i was trying to let go <laughs> Yeah, and this is not that. This is finding ways to become more intimate with the actual letting go move, mm-hmm. and then applying that globally. Because what you're doing with the unscrunching, with the letting go of muscle tension, is very similar to the move of putting down a thought or putting down a response to a habit. It's the same mm-hmm. kind of just put the thing down. Mm. Yeah, I I love that, and it, it reminds me of a prompt that I sometimes use, which is like is like soften just five percent, like soften mm. or soften this area five percent. And yeah. very often it's accompanied, I'm sure you witnessed this as well, with a kind of like a deep exhale or like a parasympathetic sigh. And that's mm. usually a sign that whatever the the prompt or the verbal cue has landed in some way, it's like a sign that the body is downshifting and relaxing and, and unscrunching itself. Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The unscrunching does itself. And I am curious as to what's shifting inside at that point. This is where I don't have much insights because I'm not so familiar with how the nervous system works, but... I'm I'm curious what it's what happens in the nervous system when you notice that you're doing something and then stop doing it. Does that does that move you more into a kind of social engagement, effortless state? I guess so. But I'm hmm. this is one of my edges to explore. I think. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't. What, what I think would be fascinating to explore is this correlation between expanded awareness and the mm. social engagement or eventual vagal system, because mm. the the ventral vagal break is essentially what a lot of these practices are training and it's our capacity mm. to efficiently downregulate from a state of kind of activation you know could could be for a good reason and then just downshifting into safety engagement kind of wide awareness all these kinds of things and there's definitely a correlation and it makes sense as well i mean even just the the way that we perceive things like if if my gaze is kind of suddenly kind of softened and dilated and i'm now Mm. aware of what's the window to the left and the door to the right there is also this kind of relaxing kind of sense that comes online as well Mm. so it's it's definitely connected and it makes intuitive sense that's connected but the actual mechanisms by which this happens I find fascinating and I would love to yeah. explore more and, and dig in to see if there is any, any research being done on this. I, I think one, found anything. one thread that we can pull on, I think is Andrew Huberman who talks mm-hmm. about panoramic vision 
Yeah. Um, so he talks about that as a relaxation response, I think. But also he says somewhere that your reflexes are like four times faster when you're in panoramic vision. So mm-hmm. you can, you know, you're, you're better at catching a ball if you have a, an expanded visual awareness. He puts, mm-hmm. you know, more, more peripheral vision. And this, I mean, I agree, obviously. I just think it's not just visual. It's partly visual. It's just other senses as well. It's, it's the expansion of sense, maybe, that, yep. that yep. opens up this other state. Yep. And then we can, I think we can like dig into what what's the research behind panoramic vision, perhaps, and use that as a way into right. um, it, it, the it's research like, here. That is almost like a downstream effect of expanding one's awareness that is probably think most so. relatable to most people. Exactly. And most scientifically backed at this point. So I, I use the, you know, prompt of become aware of your peripheral vision as a, as a way in. And that is exactly how he describes panoramic vision. Mm-hmm. It's just that you can also expand your auditory vision, so to speak. You can mm-hmm. use all these mm-hmm. other senses that you can expand to become more available to the world. Mm. And I, I suspect that there's a very different state that actually we haven't talked about availability. Um, it's not just that I could do things is that if anything happens in the world, I can respond appropriately to it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not blocking off. Then the example maybe is um, martial arts of, well, I'm, I'm a martial artist. I've got people around me who might attack me, but they're mm-hmm. kind of stationary for now. If I prepare, if I get ready at the guy on my left, the guy on my right hits me and vice versa. <laughs> I have to wait until one of them flinches and then I respond however I have to respond given what happens. Mm-hmm. But I, I need to stay in that, that available to spontaneity state. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that we're pointing at. And I think that the nervous system probably is in a different state when it's mm-hmm. just like fully alive, fully there, fully present, fully waiting and also not do anything mm. right? just and it might not be social engagement if you're under threat but it's still a kind of i'm not shutting down i'm here but not moving in any one direction if you like mm. yeah i i love that and i think this kind of comes full circle to what we were talking about in the beginning in the sense of that availability or ability to respond appropriately to any situation mm. is, is i think what we're both really pointing to and from from my framing with breath work, there are certain reflex, like our nervous system can get stuck in certain modes. Like when people mm. are close to burnout, they're often stuck in that sympathetic state, which leads to panic attacks and anxiety and irrational fear that is kind of inappropriate to the situation that they're in. And mm. at the other at the other end of the spectrum, people can get stuck in dorsal responses where they're shut down, disassociated, depressed, and these things. And that inhibits them or, or, may, or makes it very hard to then respond appropriately to the stimulus that is arriving. And so through different practices, explorations, the, the, the ultimate goal, I think, is to enable a human to mm. respond completely appropriately to yeah. whatever the situation is asking of them and whatever whatever state of awareness and whatever particular branch of the nervous system is being required from that action. I think that's kind of like where we're going to. And that for me is yes. almost like, that's like pure flow where there's nothing really getting in the way. Yeah. And oftentimes the appropriate response is the one that you would have done anyway. I want to make this point quite clearly is that let's say that you're being yelled at by your boss and your habit is to yell back, but you go like, no, 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 I'm going to not do that. But then you still can yell back if you want to. Like the appropriate <laughs> response might be to say, hey, shut up. You're being an asshole right now. <laughs> like, that's still okay. It's not saying yeah. I'm, I'm not allowed to do the, the habitual thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's like I could do anything. I'm just but, stepping out of the groove. But it's, it's done intentionally, but not like reactively. Yes. I think that's like, yeah, the, it's reactivity versus intentional choice. Exactly. So you stay expanded, you have your, your goodness. And then the way that you yell back, if you do choose to yell back, will be different. 
because mm. you've made a choice and you're not kind of just compelled. Mm. The other thing that comes up when you're speaking here is the probably a, a second podcast episode <laughs> on the societal implications of all this. So what does it look like for a society to be mm. in the, the appropriate nervous system state, let's say ventral vagal, for them to have high goodness and respond appropriately mm. at that systemic level as opposed to just the individual level? What would our world look like if we if we could all and not just all be in that state, but kind of design systems and policies and and various, you know, ways of moving through the world as as a civilization that would have access to these ideas that we're talking about, as mm. opposed to responding habitually and being collapsed in certain grooves and you know, blah blah blah. Yeah. I I have many thoughts on this. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think that we should probably plant this flag for around two. Yeah. But I, I think briefly just to speak to that i think part of this process maybe another frame that we can give is almost like a process of like unlearning or deconditioning and mm. in the in the societal lens like my experience is kind of spending four or five days in in nature or or surfing or, or something like that i find myself naturally kind of sinking back to a state of more aliveness more goodness mm -hmm. more expanded awareness all of these things that mm. we've been discussing and so i think the the environmental context is also a, a really important factor or variable in these things. Like I, I also lived in London for about a year and I can tell you my awareness was collapsed on a daily basis, oh, yeah. like going into the tube and just trying to like protect myself from the, the onslaught of, of sensory kind of input and, and noise and light that was coming my way. I think, you know, it mm -hmm. is, I think a very healthy protection response in some ways. And so I think part of this is almost like a resensitization um, mm. and, 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 and allowing this like greater expanded awareness to feel safe and that you're not going to get like sirens or, you know, whatever it is yeah. coming right at you. <laughs> yes. I mean, after, after 15 years in London, I definitely had a, a strong yeah. desire to I get can, the hell out I, I and come somewhere like Bali. Yeah. Mm. It's when you are on, you know, assaulted by, by unnatural noises, I can, I can definitely see why you want to just like cut that stuff out. And I think I made this, I made this point on Twitter and I said like, you know, if you're probably reading a phone right now, just remember that you can, you be aware of the space and all that kind of stuff. And most people are like, oh, this is a very nice experience. Thank you. And some people were kind of like jokey, they like, oh, now I can hear the traffic outside and the, you know, the drilling next door. I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> that is a thing. I mm -hmm. still think that the expansion is better than, you know, cutting your awareness out of those things, but it certainly mm -hmm. doesn't make it pleasant to begin mm -hmm. with if you're not sure how to deal with that. You know, yeah. sensory overload is a thing if you, you know, don't know how to deal with it or if you can't get space away from it or you know various things if the only option you have is to cut the world off from your experience yeah it works but again you have that technical debt issue of you will become someone who's habitually contracted yeah uh, which is not a state i think is one that's good for humans right no I, I agree and and my my experience and the people that i've worked with is that the more sensitive someone tends to become the more they're their environment, maybe their work culture, even their relationships mm. also tends to shift as well. Like mm. It tends to just kind of happen organically. It's not that they suddenly decide to, I don't move to Bali or whatever yeah. it is, but that tends to be a kind of downstream consequences of as they become more sensitive, certain environments just become intolerable. And so they just mm. make certain changes. Yeah. There's a bit of a meme with meditators who just stop drinking because mm they just it, it sucks now i just i can't drink anymore because it just feels bad I'm like well it, maybe it always felt bad in a certain way and now just noticing it unable to choose that you don't want that so i think yeah the more people who go on this path tend to make changes such that their environment more easily maps onto what they what mm. they prefer and help them be expanded
Yeah. So one, one more kind of, I guess, like theme or question I wanted to run past you was this idea of, and we talked about this briefly in Bali, but this idea of like healthy ambition. Mm. And so I'm curious for you, how is your, how is your motivation and your, and your drive and this like healthy ambition evolved recently? And, and what are you, like, what are some of your dreams? What are you kind of imagining mm. for the next six, 12, 18, 18 months, two or three years? Like, what are you, what's coming alive for you? It's, it's a great question as I'm kind of allowing that side of me to come out again. Because I think part of what happened was that my ambition and you know, ways of being at work before hurt me ultimately. So there's a sense of me learning to trust again, that ambition won't hurt me yeah. now. So mm-hmm. I realizing all the ways that I I'm undoing the the low goodness that I've I've learned. Like, no, I can't go there because it's dangerous. No, I can't do that because I'll get hurt. I'll, you know, mm. I don't want to work that hard and near burnout again. Mm. Um, but for now, I think what's coming alive for me is I really think there's something additional here in this Alizarin technique frame as a thing that has a lot of similarities with stuff that came out of Eastern traditions but was entirely Western developed. Um, mm-hmm. To my knowledge, there were no influences from Alexander on Alexander from from say Taoism or Buddhism or anything else. Mm. So it's kind of convergent evolution almost. Interesting. Um, and I've spoken to people who know about those things, and you know there are overlaps, of course, and there are pieces of the puzzle in both sides. And I'm really curious about exploring what those things are, particularly from this applied to the societal frame thing. So if I could be someone who helps people increase their goodness, become more alive, increase the sense of agency, such that they go out into the world and apply that those new capacities to whatever it is they're working on, I'd be very happy with that. And that is potentially enormous, right? So far, I'm, you know, I have a thousand students in my course, and a lot of them are having experiences that I think are helpful for their lives. And there's a ripple effect there. But how do I get to the next million students? How do I make sure the outcomes are are more clear and more consistent how can i give them more than i'm currently giving them and how do i integrate this practice with other practices to so i'm not just in my ivory tower saying well this is the one clear truth and this, you know all do this i don't believe in that i just happened to do as Antony because it was nearby and it was interesting that i don't it's not my one thing so kind of building a, a portfolio of practices almost that can help people come fully alive and make new choices mm. and then apply that to the world is i think where i'm going what that looks like i don't know but it the more I think about it, the bigger and bigger it gets. And I'm kind of mm. containing or allowing myself to fully feel that ambition without getting moved by it, if you like, mm. getting caught up in it. Yeah, that's beautiful. And and for the record, I mean, your ivory tower is a bl- is a great place to hang out. Like I'd, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank I'd, you. I'd chill there anytime with your thousand thousand students. And and I think and I think you're right. And and I feel like we're kind of both at similar stages of this evolution. I'm also kind of coming background into this idea of of healthy ambition and mm. feeling the the aliveness and joy that is also there as well and i do think that the, the this kind of territory that we're exploring it can be used in confluence with so many other themes or topics so so one that i know you've talked about is is creativity and mm. that i i've also thought about that in the context of breathwork and how you know people i think you also talked about having this like download of ideas mm. and this like creative breakthrough during a breathwork journey but it's mm. typically typically breathwork is kind of offered through the lens of of either like have a psychedelic type experience or kind of work through your shit 
but I think mm. there is a you know a great case to be made of applying these things for creatives or writers or people working on interesting problems. Mm. It does feel like there's so much. There's like a there's very high goodness, <laughs> like expanded yes, yes. possibility yeah. in in you know the directions that we that either of us I think could potentially go into. Yeah, totally agreed. And and that download experience that you described was bizarre for me because it just it, it was so structured and complete i hadn't really <laughs> you know I, I see creativity as like gather like catching these wisps on the wind and like oh there's a little mm. thing there, a little thing there and then you kind of bring it together but no i was just lying on the floor breathing and it's just like you know part one part two part three part four they t- <laughs> like this and like, it's all just like a it's like part of my brain had mm. been doing all the work already and it's just like now it's giving it to me on a plate like, okay that's package. that's a new that's a new, new experience for me I, I, I think the world could deal with more of this i think that's amazing. I've, I've heard the poet Mary Oliver, she, she spoke to, I think there were like a handful of poems that felt like a passing tornado and she could sense it coming. And she mm. was like, quick, I need to get to like a pen and paper and like write it down. Yeah, and yeah. it just like came out in this like fully formed, perfect. That it was just like, like, where did that come from? And, and yeah. who knows? I, I think that's part of the mystery. Yeah. So if we can figure out how to access that thing, you know, it sounds a bit kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Almost Promethean, or like catching fire in the bottle from the gods. Mm. But if there are ways of facilitating access to that thing, the thing yeah. where ideas really come from that isn't the part of ourselves that we call I, right. that I think would be a, a valuable exercise mm. and gift to the world. I totally agree. And I think that is a, is a beautiful note to begin to wrap up. Mm-hmm. Before we do, I have a few rapid fire questions. If you're, okay. if you're open to playing along. Let's do it. Okay. So the first one is, yeah. What is, what is one question that is alive for you right now? Mm. Does the answer have to be rapid fire? Or? <laughs> no, our answer can be okay. long, long form. So it, it's going to sound weird, but ironically like what is aliveness is the question that is most alive for me i mean you, you had me try to explain this thing earlier of like oh it's to do with goodness and awareness and intention and attention like that sounds a little bit much and it's kind of a bit yeah, clunky yeah. but what yeah. actually is the state that that is brought up by these things and how can i teach this to people in a way that they will reliably understand ultimately and can I switch on in them in their lives and their bodies that is very alive for me because if I can figure that one out, I think my my teaching, my offer will be a hundred times more valuable. It's mm. not just noticing skills that I'm I'm teaching here. It's be fully alive skills, and then I can integrate it with other stuff at the same time, like you know tantra and breath work and other stuff that they can start flowing into that. Mm. But once that once that egg's been cracked, that's that's what I want to get to. I think that's a mm. big shift for me. Beautiful. So this question just came to me, but I'd love to know. What is one of the most interesting, impactful reflections or stories that you've had from mm. one of the thousands-ish students who've taken your course? Mm. Let me see. So I'm torn a little bit with sharing because it's in a private community and mm. most things aren't public. So I'll kind mm. of what I'll do is I'll, I'll I'll mix a few themes together as an illustration. Sure. But mostly the 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 experience that moves me is the experience of just enjoying life more. There's there's a wonderful uh, a tweet from someone. Can I swear on your podcast? Feel fucking free. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Someone just like 
you know, took Michael's course and there's just this, I'm feeling like this. And there's like a, a cartoon panel of just look at that beautiful fucking flower. What a beautiful fucking day. Isn't life fucking great or whatever it is. Like <laughs> that seems to be a pretty like common response of like, oh, I just, mm. like, my life feels better now in ways that aren't like huge. And oh my God, I've just resolved this long held trauma. It's just like the mm. world is just nicer and more, more, like, more enjoyable. And I have choice to engage with it differently. Mm. There's normally variations of the world is shinier and I can make different choices within it. And mm. that's good. That's normally where it goes. And there's like more detailed and nuanced versions of that, but that seems to be the general story. Mm. I love that. And and I think that just to kind of, that like that definitely maps onto my experience as well. And and I, I, I believe that like the quality of our life is to some degree a function of the quality of our, of our attention and our awareness. Mm. And mm. so if you're unlocking that capacity for greater attention and awareness, I imagine that's really funneling or translating to just an, an increased quality of life, which is mm. is really a, a huge gift. And I think ultimately what a lot of people are seeking through other pursuits, which are mm. perhaps less effective at <laughs> getting what the thing that they actually want. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we all crave a sense of being fully here in the world for the unfolding mm. of our you know, world and precious life, ultimately, it's like really being here. Mm. rather than going oh i just I don't know where i was today it just wasn't really here i was lost in thought and i was worrying about the thing from whatever to actually come back into the world and like oh no th- it's a beautiful day it's it's mm. just a really beautiful day and i can enjoy that and be part of that as it unfolds and step through the veil almost that we habitually have there and step out of that reactivity cycle of that, that takes us out of the world. It's like, oh, a thing happened, and then I spent two hours worrying about it, and I missed the sunset. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's that kind of thing. Or I'm going to enjoy the sunset while also worrying about that thing that this person said. At the same time, it's not like they're exclusionary. Mm. Um, I can st- I can remain unmoved. I can remain in the world and deal with the, uh, the details of my life at the same time. It's mm. beautiful. I'm, I'm noticing my entire body just like soften and relax as I'm listening to you speak. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that is a beautiful, a beautiful note to end on and to to wrap up. So yeah, this is this has really been such a pleasure. I knew it was going to be good, and it did not disappoint. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple of years, and meeting you in Bali was awesome. I'm hoping to get a chance to meet again. And mm. yeah, this this podcast just felt like a normal conversation. So thank you for for making that happen. It was wonderful. Amazing. So where can awareness curious listeners find you online learn about this course kind of understand more about you know what the hell we've been talking about for the last hour and a half (laughs) yeah so the the best place is the website Mm expandingawareness.org which is all the Alizana technique and adjacent awarenessy stuff the course is in there as well and then otherwise i'm also on michaelashcroft.org and on twitter at at underscore at uh, m underscore ashcroft rather beautiful and just a a huge plug like i would if you've listened to us talk for this long and you haven't already taken (laughs) michael's course you really really won't regret signing up for it it's it's truly wonderfully communicated i think you have this real gift for articulate communication for quite like effing the ineffable is is a phrase that came (laughs) up earlier today and i think that's that's one of your one of your gifts thank you so i'd like to close with the the rilke line he said Try to love the questions themselves and live them now. 
Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. So with that in mind, what what question is most alive in your consciousness right now? And this may be the same answer as earlier. And what question might you leave our listeners with? Mm. I mean, ironically, the, the question that's most alive is what's for breakfast? Have <laughs> 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 the monkeys eaten my breakfast? <laughs> yeah, not, not yet, but <laughs> so there's a connection. Let's see, something more, more earnest than that. How can I... Yeah, how can I be fully here for all of my life is a question that I ponder more and more these days. Mm. How can I stop rejecting certain parts of my experience on myself, welcome them and allow them to be here fully is it's just something that I, I keep coming back to more and more here in Bali and in the last couple of years, having habitually closed so much of myself and my experience off from mm being allowed almost mm. how can i allow more of myself mm, beautiful well thank you so much this has been such a pleasure yeah thank you johnny i hope you enjoyed this conversation it would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give curious humans a shiny five-star rating This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.